Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. If we can't measure and verify the carbon that's being stored, there is no market, there's no purchase, there's no ability to compare carbon removal solution to carbon removal solution. And so that, I think, is kind of a missing gap in the sector today. And I'll say from the company perspective, we've heard that a lot of these companies are investing, you know, really outsized resources in getting their monitoring, reporting and verification right. And that is a pretty significant drain on the capital that they've raised, which I think, you know, many of these companies are willing to do because they're in it for the climate impact. They care about climate change and they want to make sure that these solutions work. But at the same time, I think it poses a challenge around competition where we see really very little differentiation in the traditional carbon offset market, which is where a lot of these companies are interested in selling their tons and where they're able to access a lot of near-term purchases outside of sort of like the few companies like Frontier and Shopify and Microsoft who have made some of these sort of landmark carbon removal purchases. And so when they're turning to other markets, I think they're seeing many carbon removal solutions without robust monitoring, reporting and verification or with low levels of durability have a competitive edge. One, because there's sort of no ability to tell within the market what project has good MRV and what project has bad MRV but two, because they're investing such a significant amount of their time and capital into developing monitoring, reporting, and verification. So I think it's a big challenge for the industry, for the market, and for the companies themselves. Okay. Gianna, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It is great to have you on. Thanks, Nick, for having me on. Excited to be here. So I always like to dive straight in. I would love to hear about the work that you're leading currently at the Carbon Removal Alliance, and also maybe a little bit of color on how the alliance got started in the first place. Absolutely. The Carbon Removal Alliance is a new organization that brings together right now over 25 carbon removal companies who are all working on different technology verticals from enhanced rock weathering to director capture to bikers approaches to ocean-based approaches. Mm. And our members are responsible for nearly all of the permanent carbon removal to date. Our goal as the Carbon Removal Alliance is to really bridge the gap between the carbon removal private sector and federal policymakers. So our goal is to translate the challenges that entrepreneurs are facing when they're trying to commercialize carbon removal technologies and feed that into the federal policy process in order to ultimately bring these solutions to scale and help develop these technologies faster. Excellent. And and how long has the Carbon Removal Alliance been around? We just launched at the beginning of February. So we are a very new organization. <laughs> and we were really born, I think, out of the needs that the industry is facing. I think carbon mm. removal is pretty unique in terms of other climate technologies or other industries more generally. I think carbon removal has more challenges around market creation than other climate technologies. And so I think companies are realizing that they need to look to federal policy for support much earlier than we see in other industries. And that was really the impetus for starting this coalition. And you've been working in carbon removal and kind of You've been tapped into the industry for a lot longer than just since February, obviously. So would love to get listeners caught up to speed a little bit on kind of 
how you've formed perspective over the, the past years and what the path was before you came to heading up the Carbon Removal Alliance. Yeah, I've been working in the carbon removal space for about a decade now. <laughs> I first got interested, which is a long time in the carbon removal space. Yeah, for sure. It's like all of the, all, almost all of the, <laughs> the history uh, yeah, in, yeah. in a way. I think my sort of first foray in the carbon removal space was really when the IPCC's fifth assessment report came out. And I think buried 500 pages deep into that very long and wonky report, there was sort of this assumption that we needed to remove carbon on the gigaton scale in order to meet our climate goals. And for someone who had been working, you know, more in the renewable energy or broader climate space, that was kind of a shocking realization for me. And mm-hmm. it sort of led me on this journey to understand exactly how central carbon removal is to our climate strategy. And in 2015, I co-founded an organization called Carbon 180, which was sort of the first dedicated carbon removal organization. And our goal was really to cement carbon removal as a core pillar of our decarbonization strategy alongside emissions reductions and adaptation. And then through that work at Carbon 180, did a lot to usher in the foundational policies that we see across the carbon removal space today. So the research funding at the Department of Energy for Carbon Removal Solutions the 45Q tax credit, and the Direct Air Capture Hubs program. At Carbon 180, we were able to usher in a lot of the foundational policies that we see in the carbon removal space now, including the research and development funding at the Department of Energy, the 45Q tax credit, which provides $180 per ton of CO2 incentive for Direct Air Capture Plus storage and the Direct Air Capture Hubs program. I think I have seen the impact that those federal policies have on the private sector space just from those really early incentives at honestly relatively low dollar amounts have caused this catalytic effect in the Mm. private sector and really increased the number of innovations and startups that are developing carbon removal technologies, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited to join the Carbon Removal Alliance to you know, better be able to draw that line and that connective tissue between the startups who are developing these technologies and the federal policies that can help get them to scale. And I'm super excited to talk about everything that's happening in the present moment because, you know, we've gotten to a point where there is now, as you mentioned, a lot of momentum coalescing both in the public sector and momentum has been coalescing in the private sector, certainly for the past few years around, yeah, really building a new industry in the U.S. and and ultimately in the world for carbon removal. I'm curious, given that you've been in the space for a decade, did all of this happen faster and at larger scale than perhaps you would have expected? Or, I don't know, have you just kind of been so deep in the weeds the whole time that (laughs) you're just keeping up with everything as it comes? I'm definitely, I'll say, pleasantly surprised at the amount of progress that has happened, even in just the last five years. Well, you know, when we first started Carbon 180, we had in the first year, almost 600 conversations with folks across the investment space at corporate sustainability, policymakers, academics, NGOs. And most of the time when you said the word carbon removal, like people's eyes glazed over or they said (laughs) carbon renewal or they said, oh, you're talking about CCS. So the level of fluency and knowledge around carbon removal was essentially zero eight years ago. And so I think to really see carbon removal as such a central pillar of our climate action and to see such an increase in the 
maturity of these technologies, quite frankly, I think Mm. is really impressive. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that one, people are seeing climate as a more and more urgent problem. But I think more broadly, we now have a climate playbook of how do we develop these technologies. And we have examples of what we did around solar and wind. And so I'm hoping that we can take a lot of those lessons of how did we commercialize those technologies and, you know, draw from those lessons for the carbon removal industry and move a lot more quickly. So definitely pleasantly surprised. And I'm hoping that we sort of can continue this kind of exponential growth curve. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's definitely a lot more consensus, as you mentioned, whether from the IPCC or from other groups, that this is obviously an important climate prerogative. And it's been quite encouraging and interesting to see the private sector demand for durable carbon removal. And, you know, that's such a big kind of tailwind behind all of this, too, is recognizing that for corporate buyers to meet their net zero targets or at least make progress towards them, the amount of demand that's forecast for durable carbon removal out to 2030 or later is pretty significant. And so, you know, that's going to require actual (laughs) infrastructure deployment and work on the ground for companies to be able to deliver that. Absolutely. I think those first corporate buyers have been extremely helpful in jumpstarting the field and providing those first customers for technology developers across all kinds of carbon removal solutions. And in order to get to the next scale, I think there's a lot more that we need to do. I think you mentioned some really important pieces around like infrastructure and workforce development, but I think standards um, will also be a really critical piece to that. So ensuring that we have trust in the market so Mm. that we're able to attract sort of the next generation of buyers who are maybe a little bit more hesitant or who don't have as much in-house scientific expertise to really vet carbon removal projects. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm excited to dig into all of those different kind of pillars that you mentioned in a little bit. But I'm also realizing that, you know, for some of our listeners, they might not be fully caught up to speed with everything that's happened in the past month or two, or even just this year. And off the top of my head, I'll try to (laughs) enumerate (laughs) some of the things that have crossed my radar. I mean, last month was certainly kind of a watershed moment in terms of public sector funding being formalized for carbon removal. People have known for a while that the government was working on the DAC Hubs program, but last month they announced $1.2 billion in funding for a lot of different projects, but especially for Heirloom, Climeworks, which are both carbon removal companies, and then also 1.5, which is a joint venture between Carbon Engineering and Occidental Petroleum. And there was all kinds of other stuff in a lot of those releases as well. There's a new government procurement program, which marks the first time that a national government will buy carbon removal directly from some of these companies. And then I think in recent weeks, and then I promise I'll pause because I definitely am not going to be able to get through everything significant that happened for carbon removal in the past month, but we've seen some really significant pre-purchases also. Heirloom pre-sold more than 300,000 carbon removal credits. And then recently, I think this week it was, Amazon purchased 250,000 or 200,000 carbon removal credits as well. So... That's a lot of different stuff. I guess my question to you is, maybe we can move through some of them piecewise, but what stood out the most to you or were these things that you were kind of aware were happening and were keeping an eye on behind the scenes? But yeah, how's all of this landed for you in carbon and the Carbon Removal Alliance? I mean, I think it's really big news and we are so excited that a number of our member companies were both recipients of these federal world 
awards, but also have been a part of these major private sector purchases. I think that was really exciting for us to see, you know, our members continue to be leaders and champions at the forefront of the carbon removal space. I think together, these announcements really signal a leveling up for the carbon removal field. To date, much of the work that has been done on carbon removal has been really like relegated to the labs or deployed on extremely small scales, capturing Mm -hmm. like hundreds to a thousand tons of CO2 per day. I think what makes these announcements really exciting is their scale and their breadth. So for the Director Capture Hubs program in particular, these are going to be the first million ton projects and the first million ton facilities. I think the largest director capture facility to date right now is 36,000 tons of CO2 per year. So this is a pretty significant step change in terms of the scale of carbon removal, which gets us that much closer to what we actually need for the climate and also gets us a ton of really valuable operational data in terms of, you know, what are the like environmental impacts of Mm. such a large-scale director capture facility? How do we do community engagement for a large-scale director capture facility do our projections around economies of scale actually prove out at this <laughs> right. size? And so I think these will be really important projects that not only give us that extremely valuable operational data on how do we do these things better, but also will be sort of the public's first perception of large-scale carbon removal. So it's really important that we do these projects right. You don't want to put too much pressure on the innovation process, but I think these will sort of be kind of like keystone projects for the carbon removal field moving forward. I'll say one thing more broadly about both the carbon removal purchases and the DOE's announcements around procurement is that we're also seeing companies and the federal government turn towards a much broader suite and portfolio of carbon removal solutions beyond just direct air capture, which I think is really important if we are going to get to the gigaton scale that's outlined at the climate models. It says we need anywhere from like five to 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. And we know that direct air capture alone cannot meet those those targets. And so it's really important that we think about developing that full suite of solutions. And we're starting to see people take that portfolio seriously. Yeah, it definitely feels like a rubber meets the road moment for the industry. I think between 2017 and 2022, there was a lot of private sector funding that went into many of the same companies. And you know now it's being amplified by the federal government too, which is excellent. But yeah, as you said, now it's, it's time to actually make good on some of that scale up and to actually deploy the infrastructure necessary to do so and to fulfill some of those kind of pre-purchase contracts that have come in for some of the early movers in the space. I'm curious now to kind of broaden back the discussion to some of those pillars you hinted at earlier, whether it's kind of systems for measurement, reporting and verification, or also thinking about, you know, what's the community benefit as these projects pop up in the real world. What's the next six months to a year look like for the Carbon Removal Alliance now that all of this funding has been rolled out and that we know that companies are going out and trying to build real facilities in the world? How are you focused on kind of supporting that work? And and let's speak to some of those pillars and what's needed to really ensure that those continue to develop alongside the actual kind of in-the-ground infrastructure. I think, you know, a big part of our work 
over the next year is going to be really supporting the Department of Energy in the implementation of these mm. programs. I think it's really easy to celebrate <laughs> when funding gets across the finish line, which is a, it's a really tough challenge, you know, in Congress these days, but implementation is half the battle. And in particular, the Department of Energy a couple weeks ago released a notice of intent, which we sort of alluded to at this point. A notice of intent really is just a signal of what programs and funding opportunities they're going to be announcing over the next six right. months. And so we sort of have a roadmap of what DOE wants to do. Within that notice of intent, it included funding for demonstration projects for a whole suite of carbon removal solutions, and then this federal procurement program, which would allot $35 million for the purchase of a broad portfolio of carbon removal. I think it's really important that we make sure that those programs are really implemented in ways that support high quality projects. And for us at CRA, that means projects that are permanent on timescales of a thousand plus years. They're additional, they're net negative, they're verifiable, and they center the needs of communities. And so we want to make sure that that's embedded both in the demonstration funding and in the procurement program. I think in particular, the procurement program is really exciting because it's a first-of-a-kind innovation strategy for the Department of Energy. Typically, when you think about government procurement, you're thinking about like the GSA or the Department of Defense purchasing goods that the government needs to run. And this is the first time DOE is really saying, actually, we're going to purchase tons from nascent technologies that aren't yet proven because we know that we need to create a market for these technologies. And with that comes a challenge around setting the rules of the road for the purchases that they make. And the federal government needs to set rules around the purchases that they're going right. to make. And I think that's really going to set the paradigm for what high quality carbon removal looks like and will have ripple effects for the private sector. I think we touched upon this already, but there are a number of private sector purchasers who are waiting on the sidelines because they don't have enough trust in the carbon removal market. So I think even though $35 million is a relatively small amount, if the federal government says, you know, here is our bar that companies have to measure up to in terms of what good carbon removal looks like, I think those standards can unlock, unlock orders of magnitude more funding from the private sector. And that's really exciting. And that's a reason why I think we're going to be spending a lot of our time helping to inform, you know, their purchases and make sure that they're really championing the best possible projects within that procurement program. And we've also seen a lot of interest in federal procurement from Congress. Right now, there's a bipartisan bill called the CREST Act, which would create a pilot procurement program and sort of build upon the work that DOE is already doing. And so it's important that DOE also has this program as an early proof point to gain more congressional support and get some of those bills passed. Yeah, this the criteria that the DOE will now kind of, or already has been, and will now continue to work on behind this procurement program strikes me as particularly significant too. For one, for reasons that you mentioned, you know, as the government begins making carbon removal purchases, that should definitely serve as a strong signal to private sector actors that, you know, there is a little bit more credibility and fidelity behind the work that companies are doing to produce those credits. If the government's done diligence and decided that certain criteria are important to them. It stands to reason that a lot of folks will will kind of draft off of that. And the upshot of that is that it should definitely, you know, accelerate the private sector demand for a lot of these solutions and give folks confidence, as you said, to 
begin using these, or I shouldn't say folks, but companies' confidence to purchase credits as well. It's also interesting to me to what extent that will potentially drive some stratification across all of the pathways of carbon removal. We've spoken to the fact that we really need kind of a lot of different carbon removal pathways to work well and to kind of be supported by rigorous systems if we're going to get to that gigaton and then also 5 to 10 gigaton scale. So I guess for me, there's also a slight bit of concern that, you know, if the first round of criteria really focuses to a large degree on durability and maybe supports technologies like direct air capture most significantly, that, you know, catalytic capital for other pathways that perhaps aren't as mature, if you will, doesn't dry up. Um, And yeah, those are just some things that I'm thinking about. There's definitely going to be a lot of positives from what's enumerated in the initial criteria, but it's also going to be important that other actors or also the government itself continue to also think about ways to catalyze pathways that might be a little bit more in their infancy. I think that, you know, is a really like smart hesitation to have. And I think it will be important for the government to figure out how do we set standards of quality that don't prematurely pick winners? Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about the early days of the carbon removal field, but you know, I wouldn't have guessed that half of these solutions, approaches, or technologies would have existed five (laughs) years ago. So it's really important that we're future-proofing these policies so that they can keep up with the science and they can keep up with the innovations in the private sector. And that, I think, is a really tall order. It's hard to design technology-neutral policy in a way that creates that flexibility, but upholds the principles of quality and climate impact. So I think that's definitely a challenge that DOE will face. I think one other important distinction here is that procurement is often talked about in two ways. One is around procurement as an innovation strategy. So can the government purchase tons that are maybe a little bit risky or a little bit uncertain to, as you said, drive that catalytic capital where the private sector isn't willing to go or procurement as a scale mechanism? So ultimately thinking about procurement as the long-term market for carbon removal solutions once we know their climate impact. And I think for the stage of the industry right now, procurement as an innovation mechanism is absolutely the right way to go because of just the relative maturity of this field and the fact that the tons are going to be relatively small Mm -hmm. today, but getting those first projects on the ground and financing a full suite of carbon removal solutions, I think will pay much larger dividends than only focusing on the tons that are super certain and don't have like any uh, uncertainty or open questions around them. And so I think that is like another important framework that doesn't get talked about enough. It's like, how do we use this? How do we use the federal government's funding to take on projects that are a little bit riskier where we don't see other people willing to take that on? There was so much in the releases from the DOE and from the government that also didn't get necessarily as much airtime as the big headline numbers. I'm interested also, because it's not something that I know a massive amount about, but there's also kind of the newly formed Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which I think has the potential to, you know, really support some of what we're talking about as perhaps less proven carbon removal pathways want to move from that lab scale to actually developing some of their own pilots in the wild, as it were. Is that something that you all have been kind of paying attention to as well at the Carbon Removal Alliance? Because it's not something that I am (laughs) particularly educated on, but I was interested to maybe pick your brain a little bit about 
how you see the role of that new kind of government department in everything that we're speaking to. I think it's really interesting that, you know, DOE under this administration has gone through a pretty significant reorganization. And part of that has been an increased focus on demonstration and deployment, which I think is really exciting. I think in the U.S., we've seen with other climate technologies like solar and wind, a really strong investment in technology development. But then we see those technologies actually exported to other geographies Mm. when it comes to the manufacturing, when it comes to the infrastructure, and when it comes to the actual deployment. And so I think the restructuring of DOE is an exciting paradigm shift to actually say, no, we want to build these industries within the U.S. We want to attract business here and we want to demonstrate these technologies and then eventually deploy them when they're ready. And the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations is one of the core offices that will help realize that goal. In particular, around carbon removal, we've seen the OSED office collaborate with the Department of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management on programs like the Direct Air Capture Hubs program, as well as some of the demonstration funding in this. And I think that really strong collaboration between the Applied Research Office and the Demonstration Office will hopefully mean that we're able to get projects on the ground faster. I'd be really curious now to also speak to some of the the pillars that we haven't yet touched on. A couple that immediately come to mind for me and that I know are also big part and parcel of what the government is working on is the whole measurement, verification, and reporting side of the equation for carbon removal. I'm just interested in your perspective from where you sit how you all are working to also kind of stay abreast of what the government is thinking there. And also, you know, when you work with your member companies, what are some of the conversations that you're having with them around ensuring that their MRB systems are kind of going through quantum leaps, as it were, in the same way that that the funding side of things are? I'll start by saying that I think monitoring and reporting and verification is so central to the long-term success of the carbon removal industry. If we can't measure and verify the carbon that's being stored, there is no market, there's no purchase, there's no ability to compare carbon removal solution to carbon removal solution. And so that, I think, is kind of a missing gap in the sector today. And I'll say from the company perspective, we've heard that a lot of these companies are investing you know, really outsized resources in getting their monitoring, reporting, and verification right. right. And that is a pretty significant drain on the capital that they've Mm, raised, which I think, you know, many of these companies are willing to do because they're in it for the climate impact. They care about climate change and they want to make sure that these solutions work. But at the same time, I think it poses a challenge around competition where we see really very little differentiation in the traditional carbon offset market, which is where a lot of these companies are interested in selling their tons and where they're able to access a lot of near-term purchases outside of sort of like the few companies like Frontier and Shopify and Microsoft who have made some of these sort of landmark carbon removal purchases. And so when they're turning to other markets, I think they're seeing many carbon removal solutions without robust monitoring, reporting, and verification, or with low levels of durability, have a competitive edge. One, because there's sort of no ability to tell within the market what project has good MRV and what project has bad MRV, but two, because they're investing such a significant amount of their time and capital into developing monitoring, reporting, and verification. So I think it's a big challenge for the industry, for the market, and for the companies themselves 
I think from our perspective, we've been really excited to see some of the recent investments from the Department of Energy around these topics. And in particular, they've done a lot of work to allow companies to harness the capacities and the expertise within the national laboratories. So most recently, they had a monitoring, reporting, and verification lab call where they encouraged these public-private partnerships within the national labs and with companies, NGOs, and other academics to really come together around tough MRV questions. So I'm excited to see the sort of research and findings that come out of those processes. In addition to that, they launched what they're calling an MRV voucher program. And the way that it works is that the DOE essentially would pay for or subsidize work that's happening around monitoring, reporting, and verification, life cycle assessments, or techno-economic assessments with specific DOE partners. So companies can apply for a voucher and then they can essentially cash that voucher in for MRV expertise and services. And that's another way that the DOE is trying to allow these companies to access MRV expertise and build up that component of their business Mm. while not having to do it all internally. So I think those two announcements have been pretty exciting and I think they'll pay dividends in the coming months. Yeah, I'm kind of blown away as we continue to unpack everything that the government has rolled out in the last months. I guess I shouldn't say that I wouldn't have necessarily assumed that they would have been this rigorous to kind of hit every pillar, at least in some capacity. But yeah, it's almost like this Russian nesting doll where you go iterative levels down. And yeah, there are a lot of people that are thinking really critically about, you know, not just the importance of these things, but how to provide government support to the work that private companies are doing. So yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of impressed by just how rigorously all of this is coming together. It's really exciting. I think it's laying a really strong foundation for the way that the public and private sector work together and how they actually create this sort of like virtuous cycle with their, you know, harnessing their respective strengths. But ultimately, the amount of funding that the Department of Energy has is, you know, on the scale of a billion dollars. And in order to get to gigaton scale deployment of carbon <laughs> removal. I think we'll probably need to get to the the tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, yeah. which matches up, I think, more closely with what we've seen for other climate technologies like renewable energy. So I think this is a really strong foundation. I think they're thinking about it in a really kind of like interdisciplinary and strategic way. And I'm very thankful for their leadership, but hoping we can continue to ramp up that work over the coming years. Yeah, and that brings me to another kind of topic of conversation, which, you know, in a dream state, what we're really talking about here, and we've been pretty deep in some of the specifics, but we're really talking about building, you know, ideally a trillion dollar new American and also global industry. And that, if it comes to bear, will have profound impacts for all kinds of different stakeholders. It's not just, you know, the government and private companies and their investors and the buyers who are buying their carbon removal credits. It'll also have significant impacts on local communities and job opportunities and how infrastructure gets built across the whole country. So something that I, you know, respect you and the work that you all do for really thinking critically about as well as sort of the community benefit question that is part and parcel to everything that we're discussing What kind of conversations have you been having on that front, whether it's with member companies or other organizations that sort of have that as their primary purview? Like, how are conversations kind of maturing around ensuring that 
all of this is actually a net benefit to just everyday people in America as well, beyond the climate impact, which obviously is important. <laughs> I would say, you know, the community and local impacts are just as important as their climate impacts. You know, as we're thinking about building this new industry, we have the opportunity to shape it to be in a form that we want mm-hmm. it to. And I think it's the morally right thing to do to center people and center communities in the deployment of these solutions. But I also think it's strategic. I think the more people that we can make a part of climate action, the faster we move. I think we've seen that with the renewable energy industry where we were able to build these new industries from scratch that didn't just advocate for solar policy. They also advocated for broader climate policy. And so I think it's really strategic to think about how can we build out these sort of like regional hotspots for carbon removal projects and really demonstrate the climate impact and the you know, local economic and community benefits and environmental benefits that come with these solutions. So I think that's what I would say kind of from like a framework's perspective, getting more granular into the way that we think about economic and community benefits of carbon removal solutions. I think it's really important that all carbon removal companies really engage closely with the communities in which they're going to be locating either these demonstration projects or these sort of -of first-of-a-kind commercial facilities. And that means in the very early planning stages, understanding what are the questions that communities have, how would they like to see these facilities designed, what are the challenges that they're facing, and how can these projects potentially help address some of those challenges. And I think one of the tough things about that is that it requires these companies to build a lot of trust with on-the-ground stakeholders, which honestly can slow project development in the short term, but I think is really important to their long-term viability. One of the really exciting things that I think, again, is coming out of the Department of Energy, is that they're requiring for all of their carbon removal projects to have a community benefits plan. And that requires the companies to really solidify their engagement with these communities and to you know, really demonstrate in a clear way and in a way that will be scored on their applications to say, you know, here's how we've done community engagement so far. Here's how we plan to do that throughout the life cycle of the project. And here is what we are going to um, give to the communities in terms of benefits. And that could mean a lot of different things. It could mean high paying union jobs. It could mean improvements to local air quality. It could mean Um, a portion of the revenue. It could mean electricity generation. And that's really for the communities to decide. And so I think that's something that we will also, from these director capture hub facilities and from these demonstration projects coming online in the next couple of years, get a better sense of how do we do that well. But I think I'm really, I've been really heartened by the conversations with companies who are trying to make this a central part of their business strategy. And I will say There's also a role for the Department of Energy as sort of a trusted actor to come in and to do both some of that capacity building for communities, so potentially providing funding so that communities actually have their resources and knowledge to engage effectively, but also to use their convening power to make some of these conversations more impactful, especially because so many of these small carbon removal startups 
don't have dedicated environmental justice experts or dedicated labor (laughs) experts on board. And so I think especially in the early stages, that's a role for the government to play. Yeah, it's definitely something I'll be keenly kind of curious to watch because, you know, rightfully, we've already seen that a lot of either pilot programs or infrastructure deployment that will be necessary to build a big carbon removal industry is, you know, met with opposition in local communities. I think there's been a lot of pushback against CO2 pipelines in the Midwest, for instance, and a lot of communities that, you know, have concern about how that's going to develop. There have been, I've talked to ocean-based carbon removal companies that have, you know, wanted to do alkalinity enhancement with effluent from different sources and have faced community pushback on that, where people are like, we just don't really understand what, you know, you want to do with our ocean. And we are naturally pretty skeptical of any time someone wants to put something additional in the ocean in our local community. So, yeah, something that I'm just like keeping a really close eye on. And I guess it's also, you know, to the extent that legacy oil and gas companies are deeply involved in some of what we're discussing Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is it makes sense to me that there's a lot of natural skepticism that has to be overcome. So I ultimately think that's a good thing, though, that the bar is going to be really high for some of this that we're discussing. Yeah, agreed. And I think it's important to remember that a lot of these communities have also had they're coming with historic baggage in some sense, like they're coming having worked with other industries that have not kept those promises. And I think that has been particularly true for communities that have, you know, a strong presence of oil and gas. And so I think it's important to recognize that that skepticism is often rooted in real personal experience. And so I think it's totally fair for people to have those questions and to need time and information to be able to make the decisions that are right for them personally. Zooming out a little bit, I'm curious for you and the Carbon Removal Alliance, what are some of the kind of the key obviously so much roped up in scaling this industry, but what are some of the ways that you like to measure success? Like if we looked ahead to 2030, what are some kind of outcomes that you would be particularly excited about? I'm sure some of it has is tied up in, you know, what's the actual scale of the carbon removal industry at that point. But yeah, I'll leave it to you. I won't put the cart before the horse. (laughs) (laughs) I think by 2030, we need to really see this sort of step change in the deployment and maturity of a full suite of carbon removal solutions. I would love to see, you know, carbon removal solutions deployed at the gigaton scale. So to have us globally be capturing at least 1 billion tons of CO2 and have that come from a pretty broad spectrum Mm -hmm. of technologies. I think that's really ambitious, but to be honest, that lines up with where we need to be and what the climate models say we need in order to get to our 2050 climate right. goals. I think from our perspective, because we're so you know, tied up in leveraging federal funding to help these technologies achieve scale, we really need to see the federal government take on a full suite of carbon removal policies. So that means increased funding for research development and demonstration. That means creating markets through federal procurement and additional tax incentives beyond 45Q. And then it also means all of the other supporting policies that are less exciting, but extremely important, (laughs) like regulatory clarity and making sure that companies can actually deploy these projects on the ground. And that today has been kind of a a pretty big hindrance for companies. I would add infrastructure and workforce development. 
to that category as well. They're less flashy, but actually really important to getting those products on the ground. So from my perspective, if we can get that full suite of policies passed and get orders of magnitude more funding in that tens of billions of funding scale, I think that would be what success would be for us. And the answer might be, the answer to this next question might be pretty similar, but I'm also just curious, you know, in terms of biggest challenges or things that keep you up at night, like what's the pre-mortem on all of this? If you think there's like a couple pitfalls that would prevent any of that from happening, what would you point to? I probably consider myself an optimist, so it's tough (laughs) tough for me to answer this question. I think in particular, there's a chance that the Director Capture Hubs program gets polarized. And I think in particular, we've seen, not to call too much on a renewable energy industry, but I think we've seen, for example, with solar technologies and projects like Solyndra, ways in which failed projects, which are a perfectly normal and by design part of innovation policy used as ammunition for preventing further funding. Mm. And so that's why I think some of these major director capture hubs projects are so important to get right because they are going to define the public's perception of carbon removal, but they're also going to define Congress's perception of carbon removal. And so I think if this were to go wrong in any way, it would be those projects not getting to scale or those projects having adverse impacts on the communities in which they're located, and then that being used as a reason to prevent further investment. So that's one (laughs) way. I think the other is really around this question of monitoring, reporting, and verification. And I think also the entanglement of carbon removal in the traditional carbon offsets market. And I think it's really important that we approach these markets from a quality first perspective and make sure that these tons are real, especially if they're compensating for emissions that are going into the atmosphere. And so I think if we don't have the right investments in MRV over the next five years, there's a chance that carbon removal just becomes kind of like another greenwashing strategy for companies as opposed to something that provides real climate impact. Uh, that all makes sense. That's definitely a future that we would like to avoid. I'm unfortunately now just like envisioning a 2030 article of like DAC hubs, like what happened and what went wrong. Oh, no. um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you to the work that you do to ensure that that doesn't happen. I'm very encouraged by the fact that there are a lot of folks like yourself thinking really critically about this. In closing, I always want to make sure that I invite you know some calls to action. If folks are really interested in the work that you're doing or want to keep tabs on stuff that the Carbon Removal Alliance is supporting and publishing, what's the right place for folks to keep tabs on that and also to get more intimately involved if they're so inclined? Yeah, I love that. It's definitely going to take all hands on deck uh, to get to those ambitious 2030 goals we talked about. If folks want to stay in touch, they can visit us on our website at carbonremovalalliance.org. We also have a blog where we publish you know, regular insights and downloads of what's happening in the federal policy Mm. space. And I would say, particularly if you're a person who's working in the carbon removal private sector, so either a carbon removal technology developer or a company that's purchasing carbon removal, we want to work with you. Our job is to hear the challenges, bottlenecks, and roadblocks that you're facing 
and really feed those into the federal policy process and make sure that policies actually move the needle for this industry. So happy to chat more about that and also happy to share more about what membership with our organization looks like. So there's a info email at the bottom of our website where folks can get in touch. Excellent. Well, I'm certainly going to be keeping tabs on everything that you all release to help me stay abreast of what's happening both at the public sector level and across the carbon removal space. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining, Gianna. I'm excited to check back in in six months and a year, and then we'll have a touch more clarity on how the progress on all of this is going. (laughs) Thanks. Looking forward to it, Nick. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon. Thank you.